Richard Green has published two previous books of poetry. He's the editor of the widely acclaimed Graham Greene, A Life in Letters. Green teaches creative writing in British literature at the University of Toronto. He lives in Coburg, Ontario. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Oh, it's a real pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. I'm really flattered to be here. First of all, uh, congratulations. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. It, the, the, the GG sort of came out of the heavens. I had no expectation of getting it, and there it was. Hooray! <laughs> what was it? What was the reaction? What, was, what went through your mind? Well... It's funny. It's uh, as a writer, it's it's more of a game changer than you should be able to admit because for years and years you just or I would just write and assume that you were writing for a handful of people and that you're simply keeping faith with it. And now all of a sudden, a lot, a great number of people are interested, and you're getting read, and it's uh, it's something I'm very grateful for because it gives you. Um, a real encouragement and boost recharges the batteries. An acknowledgement. Absolutely. It's it's not like you do it for the money in in the creative writing course I teach at the U of T. I always have to give a talk about the day job and one of my teaching props is a six dollar royalty check that I received a couple of years ago for uh, for a book that got some very nice reviews. So there it is, six bucks. <laughs> and uh, so you say, yeah, well, thanks for the six bucks, and thanks <laughs> for the reviews, and we do it for a lot. <laughs> you talk about rejuvenating and bringing new life to your, uh, it's not a task, but to your, what is it? I think it's some basic area of, uh, of my life. For some reason, the image of the keel of a ship comes to me there when I say that. That you know, you're down working at the keel, you're making sure that everything's in order down there, and to uh, keep you afloat. Yeah, something along those lines. And it's an essential part of my life, and it's very nice to get affirmed for it. Forty-nine years old, really forty-nine years old. You know, usually when you say a number <laughs> ending in nine, it's a lie. But in fact, I was born in 1961, mm-hmm. and it's a real nice. One of the things it's done is it's dissipated a sense of fatigue about writing. Not that I was ever going to stop, but having written a bunch of books and I was just getting a little bit tired and getting this kind of notice for the bit of my writing that is most personal. I write biographies and edit people's uh, writings. To get affirmed in this particular area is really good, real boost. Speaking of fatigue, there is in Boxing the Compass... It's more than fatigue. It's a sort of you call it a cynicism to the to the poems. I, I, I've been interested. You, you wrote about this, and I've uh, and I've been asking people about it, what they see when they read it. I know there is a habit of looking for the deepest level of crisis in a, in a set of circumstances. Since I've got the prize, I'll now criticize my poetry and be negative about. It. There is a problem with doing that. Is that it's a subtle kind of melodrama. For example, can you write a novel in which someone doesn't get shot? In a way, it's looking for sources of energy for what you write. On the other hand, you do write the poems you need, and you do glimpse these things. And around these poems that have been written are all the unwritten poems, the things about lighter, cheerier subjects that are very much a part of my life. There is a darkness about them. Now, one of the things that happens in the first section of this book is that there's no particular chronology. It's a selection not made by me even, though I very much approve of it. Carmen Starnino of Signal Editions put it together. Mm-hmm. He started off with some amusing ones before cutting loose on some of the more solemn subjects. Y- yes and no. I mean, and I think this is one of the strongest poems in the book, the very first one. Mm-hmm. I don't know if this is whimsical, if you could read the first, say, four lines. 
I am at home in a high-rise, where at night the voice of being human is a siren blare or a drunk crying fuck something or other on Sherburn Street. I see what you mean. First of all, I'm very glad that you like that poem because I put a lot of faith in it. That was a transitional poem for me trying to lay hold of urban imagery. It was a stark kind of image. It does have something of a kindly ending with the people going to their shrine, but it is a testing of hopefulness against some pretty severe images like security guards leading their dogs through the, the corridors. corridors. Yeah. Those seem to be defining details of the life lived in that place. It was the St. Jamestown area of Toronto. Tough place. You know, not the toughest place in Toronto, but pretty tough. Uh, once I had a, a girlfriend who objected very, very much, I have no idea why, to the fact that drunks would pee in the, in the stairwell. She had a difficulty <laughs> with this. And you're asking such a basic question that I almost can't answer it, why I'm drawn to those things. Most people who would know me as a person from conversation would find me lighter than my poetry. So maybe I park a certain portion of my personality on the page. There's a, there, as you say, darkness. There are also these lovely shafts of light that come through. There's one poem in particular that does that. It's called A Thousand Times, I guess. That oh, is yes, A Thousand yes, X. Yes. Could I get you to read that one? Sure, A Thousand Times. The Profusion of the Microscope. I live with my wife and child among uncatalogued species of pleasure that swim past like sudden tadpoles. I can find no scale for the lesser miracles, a domestic existence whose landscapes are a tabletop, a bedsheet, and a sink, whose horizons are paint and plaster, and whose constellations are filaments minutely hung. Love is a conversation in a water drop. Love is a conversation in a water drop brings up William Blake. I have a great deal of sympathy with William Blake, uh, the idea of glory hidden in small forms. Having attention for my poetry has curiously outed me <laughs> that I'm going to have to answer a whole bunch of questions that I slide around when I'm on the page. One of the things that I've struggled against as a writer is sentimentality. And it's not a willful thing to do, it's that I am sentimental. You try to balance that. Then. Yeah, so it may be that the severity of some of the visions is part of the story and that there's some other story I should also be telling. And it's a question of technical equipment. I believe when you wrote about my book for the Globe and one of the nicest, most perceptive reviews you could have, they ran alongside it a poem called Customs, which is one of the oldest poems in the book, but it, ha it actually gets to the heart of the set of challenges for me as a writer that when I first wrote, that was an extremely happy poem. And I took it and showed it to um, a poet whom I revered. He's dead now, and there's a poem dedicated to him in there. His name is Peter Levy, an English poet. And he looked at it and said, well, the first half's fine, the second half's half is garbage. It was all cliches and soft sentiment. I even used the lethal word wisdom in it. So I killed that Why half. lethal? Because it's so smug and easy, you know, it's so contained. I'm being flippant, because uh, I do think that you know there are wise poems and wise people about it. So I rewrote it, just staying in in the same focus, and it became darker and darker <laughs> until we get to that line about the life drifting away. And one of the things about the emotional states in the poem is that they're also somewhat hypothetical, that you're starting with something and you're pursuing it to the end, and that you may not be living the story you describe but you're up close to it in the poem, that it's coming alive there. And certain times, I, uh, you know, when you get 
into writing things, you find that the darkness of the subject is affecting you so much outside of the writing that it's time to knock it off for a bit. So, uh. Well, I couldn't help but think of Beckett. The very last three lines in part four of the poem, Over the Border, where you talk about ducks and they paddle crazily among remnants of winter, the mud and the rotted leaves casually insisting on what comes next. Mm, Yeah. At the end of that poem, I'm very afraid of letting, as they say, the fat lady sing, because I don't want her to do that. We've arrived at a big rhetorical setting. We're on the National Mall in Washington, D.C. We've just walked by Abraham Lincoln quoted a thing off the wall and we have to get down from that big note. I remember the day of the ducks being sort of amused at how they were so contrary to the great rhetoric of the place. It is saying they're casually insisting on what comes next. Is that I'm not sure that history is especially controlled in any natural sense. You know, a reader of the book will know that I am a religious person. But I think that outcomes and providence are are much more mysterious. Home is set in a great nation, a time of war, a lot of trouble, horrible disintegration could happen. There's a lot of people sick in the poem. Many of them will die. I have no way of knowing. I only meet them for a moment. There are a great many airborne images, and that in the long poem, I refuse the airborne images from the first page. It says that I'll, I'll make my poem on the ground. Yeah, so you're bussing it. You're you're on the yeah, road. Absolutely, and so you you see occasional references to birds and uh, and airplanes. At the end, I have some birds on the ground. Now, I'm not sure what that adds up to, but it seemed appropriate to bring them together there. And then there is that sense of uncertainty about what comes next, you know, really honest to God. In my own life, of course, you know, you, there is a persona there who's fairly distressed through the whole work because he's carrying around the illness of his father on his back, uh, or carrying his father around. There's an epigraph from Alan Tate about Aeneas carrying his father on his back away from Troy. So the character in the center of the novel, the novel, I don't know what that was a giveaway, but the, uh, at the center of the story is struggling with that. But that's not actually the main issue. The main issue is a country that is suffering a grave illness which it may or may not survive. The central moment in that long poem is actually before that. It's in the bus station at Chicago where a great big man has had massive heart attacks and he's described as a body suddenly undefended. Uh, He's afraid of what's going to come at him. He can't go into the bathroom because if someone pushes him, he'll have another heart attack. I'm saying that retrospectively because I didn't mean that to be the center, but now as I read it over and over, Mm. that that guy is is sort of the symbolic center of the whole work. Of course, you know, there is just the observation of all these people who have all these strange troubles. A Canadian goes over the border into the United States and you're immediately a prophet and a paragon. You know everything. You know, you're Canadian. Well, you're the observer, right? Yeah. Many of the conversations sort of shocked me. Why? Just because they were Tragic. bleak? Tragic, yeah. Fearful? Uh, uh, unsettled yeah. after 9-11, of course, yeah. I haven't said it. And you, you go to the States, whether you like them or hate them, um, you expect Americans to be strong. confident. Brash. Yeah, and if there's trouble, you just have to talk sense to Americans and they'll rescue you. You know, if you talk to them the right way, get them to do the right things, it'll be fine. You know, they'll they'll go to Europe, they'll get Hitler, Mm. they'll keep Stalin contained, they'll do all that stuff. It's like, oh my God, look at all these sick Americans. Mm. And the country is is having an awful, awful time. And how do they get out of this? Even though nowadays we all sort of venture into the States fairly often, 
it was for me a, a bit of an eye open. There were other little side journeys, and just go to small towns. One uh, that I went to was Carbondale, Illinois, which has a fairly famous university uh, there, a g good university in the Illinois system. And you look at the way it's built, and it's all these bungalows with roofs that sag, and they all have little signs on them, like, you know, Department of Nursing. Uh, that's an important American university. They have a really important library in Carbondale, Illinois. And I thought, wow, hmm, this is kind of bleak. <laughs> it's disturbing, frightening yeah. to you that your big brother is actually nowhere near as strong and confident as you exactly, were yeah. used to, and, and it's angst because of that? Yeah, I think there's a kind of grief setting in in the book. Towards the end, I describe a little session with my father, who since died. A little domestic catastrophe. A fire got started, and so he runs out with buckets of water and puts it out, and he gets away with it. He doesn't have a heart attack, and it's described as a reprieve. At the end of the poem, I'm not sure that the reprieve will last very long. The idea of protection, of assurance, of mm -hmm. a kind of, of easy graveness in the world that Americans represent for us is in trouble, and it's obviously still in trouble. We don't know for certain what comes next in, the, in human history. I mean, if we did, we'd make investments. We'd get over to the bookie shop. What I take, though, from it is that, you know, when we look at these ducks and they're mm -hmm. casually insisting on what comes next, there's a sort of stoicism, or maybe it's it's instinctual, and they're, you know, mm -hmm. they're not even bothered. They're just going ahead and doing their thing. I think that's true, too. There is a kind of a natural affirmation in that, isn't there? Just getting on with it. What happens, happens. Deal mm -hmm. with it. And if that's the way you approach life, then you're more likely to get the tadpoles appearing. Absolutely. The lovely tadpoles, yes. The, well, I call them lovely. It's just such a beautiful metaphor for happiness, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, you, you, you try and grasp a hold of the... They're funny. They're, they make yeah. you laugh. Yeah, they're, they're sweet to look at. It's a good thing. I, see, the funny thing is, is that if you talk to about 30 people, you'd be surprised that of those 30, I'd be in the top two or three for being a happy kind of guy. It's sort of funny. Yeah. Well, as you say, maybe you're getting out the dark side here and uh, you're not living it. That's true. But there was that sort of Beckettian idea that we've got to go on regardless. Answers or no answers, yeah. uh, proceed. Yeah, I, I think that's very much so. But the book, as you know, is not chronological. That This poem was followed by a, a sequence in the middle of sonnets on the death of my father. And I th think the last word of that sequence is endurance. Just, you know, uh, go forward. Uh, you know, it's not horrible. <laughs> well, this is sort of a, a joy in the challenge of it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. absolutely. I'm speaking with Richard de Green, who is the uh, author of a collection of poetry, Boxing the Compass, which has just won the Governor General's Award. Yeah. One of the concerns that I had when I read the, mm -hmm. the collection part four, my sense of it was that this is a narrative that has been broken down into stanzas to look like poetry, but it's not poetry. So can you tell me why it's poetry? The over the border. Yeah, now that is a good, really good question. It's something that I was struggling with as I was writing. It's the problem of ever writing the long poem. My old friend Peter Levy opened a poem called The Art of Poetry quoting Robert Graves. Robert Graves says there are no long poems, only short poems tied together with bits of string. And that is a view that would go back to, I don't know, Edgar Allan Poe. The thing that we look for in poetry is the local intensity. It doesn't come easily to me to write at length. There are some examples of longer poems that are um, 
more or less successful. And I'm not saying necessarily that this is successful because what you can see as you look through is I've done several things to try to, to give it a structure, an order, a coherence. One of them is, of course, your basic journey motif, which is standard. There's evocations of mythic tales. Well, the Aeneid is in there. Mm. Odyssey. The Odyssey, absolutely, Mm. the Odyssey. Mm. Lots of literary uh, resonances. The idea of a poem with lines of a fairly substantial length loping across the country is Whitman-esque. It's not not a full Whitman line. shorter than that. I, I could sustain a Whitman line. That would be, I, well, he could. I can't. It is a lot of fragmentary experiences, and I think the exact question could be asked of a lot of things that, for example, are categorized as novels. You know, something like Jack Kerouac's On the Road, mm-hmm. or even Huckleberry Finn. Uh, how do these elements fit together? When you uh, bring a thing into the poem, how does it come out of the poem? In some ways, it's close to a journal, there are examples of that. Louis McNeese's Autumn Journal in the late 30s. Other people have had a crack at that. The rhetoric is somewhat lower and less intense than in some of the other poems. And the first thing I did after I was finished with it was that I, uh, uh, I immediately cranked up the, uh, the rhetoric in the next one with a group of sonnets on the death of my father, which are very tight. For me, they're very tight. For other people, they might look loose. I can see one or two spots in those that I wish I could even make it tighter. But Stay, Sticking with the long poem, yeah. you consider it poetry because of, and you've outlined it's a number of reasons, the literary resonance, yeah. what the fragmented nature of the experience that you're conveying, the, the journey. When I read it, I thought, well, why couldn't this have been a narrative, and, and why is it chopped up this way? Well, uh, that's a very pointed question and gets to one of the struggles I I had with writing it. I thought of writing up these experiences as a kind of uh, a road novel, but I think you could almost ask the same question of how is the form working here? Is it formless? And I think to a degree I have to accept that what I've written is loose in form. I, I will not deny that. It's incremental. Certain striking experiences are recorded. I put into the best words I can find along a set of themes which come to a sort of conclusion, but then the conclusion is left open. It's a description of personal, physical, and historical dimensions that I don't have an answer to. You certainly evoke a feeling that comes off the page, and perhaps the fact that it, it's long Mm-hmm. You know, it puts you through that relentless. Yeah. I also think there is the question: Wow, is it possible nowadays to write a long poem of any length? Really, it's thirty odd pages long. Is it a, simply a, a sequence with some connections? I would hope that the pieces draw together. I can't fully answer that. When you were writing it, did you just like the way it? I'm writing this and the, the way my thoughts are congealing it's working better for me when I do break it up this way yeah yeah. well that's true too uh, a lot of the breaks tend to be shifts in situation or setting some of them you know like when you're on a train and sitting next to a guy who's drinking his whiskey and so on that the breaks come naturally some of them are curious situations that you find yourself in little vignettes I did my best not to make the breaks arbitrary uh, it's a set of challenges of writing a long and somewhat incremental poem, yeah. It's a great line in it, one that sticks with me. The poor are with you always when you walk. Yeah, yeah. 
no one has criticized it, and I'm glad, uh, and I'll bring it up. There is a kind of uh, moral tourism in uh, you know going from one sorrow to another and sort of making notes. It struck me, actually, when I was working on Graham Greene, that you could say that to some degree, Graham Greene went from trouble spot to trouble spot, taking notes and going home and getting books out of it. Opportunistically. Yeah, and and yet the books are of great value. So, you know, should he have stayed in, I don't know, grab a place, Haiti? Should he have stayed there uh, or stayed, you know, on the border and done what he could? As you travel through a place and try to know it, you see many things, but you are unable to commit to individual situations because your commitments lie elsewhere. I've got kids. I've got to, I've got to get home. It's like a healthcare worker, isn't yeah. it? You, and again, another great line, the, the nurse who cares professionally. Yes. You can't get involved, can you? Otherwise, you'd be a mess. No, and that's the thing. They have to tell the healthcare professionals, you, know, you, you just can't treat every death as your own. I'm respectful of what they do. That particular point I'm referring to is in a palliative care unit. And... Honestly, if you're going to work in palliative care, you must have, apart from the kindness, you also have to have a little detachment, otherwise you will fail. You've got to function. Yeah, you're not doing good for anybody if you're there sobbing. That particular poem, which I think is the the strongest in the collection. Oh, I'm glad you like that one. That's good to know. My poor old aunt would be be glad. (laughs) (laughs) But boy, is it ever grim. Yeah. Your picture of old age is... Uh, and again, I congratulate you on such powerful openings. Your poems just come out and punch you. And uh, perhaps I could have you read uh, the beginning of Palliative Care. Sure. Just the, sh- the journey goes past healing to places like this, where Demerol and morphine separate the last of our consciousness from a body shrinking away to pain. I nod to the man who sits on his bed, inhaling oxygen from the thin tube under his nose, as if it were some place. He seems a corner boy with cigarettes spitting because it's manly, not because he must. I know his brother, the tenor at the Basilica. When he visits, I wonder how health and sickness make two versions of a single Irish face. Further down, I discover Jim Wade, a parcel of bones. I had supposed, despite the shipwreck of his tumored lungs, that he was well enough to live a year. Here, among some books and canvases, he shows me a paragraph of his on night and sleep. The kindly boy Chubbs is inked in a strange and loving calligraphy. By the weekend, he is in his coffin. And there's one or two well-known writers and artists from Newfoundland named there. Jim Wade was a, a prose writer, and Boyd Chubbs is a poet and artist, well-known down there. <laughs> That's grim, though. Jim Wade was Kathleen Winter's husband. She was in the room. Kathleen Winter was nominated for the three prizes and uh, got all those great nominations, got pipped at the post each time. That That's the person being described. It was her first husband. For Annabelle, wasn't it? Yes, Annabelle. Yeah, I guess everyone pretty well knows everyone else down there if they're in the writing business. Yeah. Yeah, I only know half the people down there because I'm a recluse. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, let's just, uh, if I could, move on to religion. You deal with it, I think, most directly in a poem uh, about Peter Levy. Ah, yes, a little biographical background. When I was 18, I was a Jesuit for about a year and a half, and then I left that and married fairly young and went to England to study for a number of years. And while I was there, I was very interested in taking up that line of work 
and becoming an Anglican priest, and that didn't really work out. And it was seemed to me, by the time it was over, sort of a choice between being a writer and doing those things. Uh, I remain a, a religious person, though in a kind of my theology is kind of uh, scrappy, and I, I believe some of the wrong things for everybody. <laughs> so that I'm I'm Catholic, but uh, huge chunks of Catholic theology I don't buy into. A smorgasbord. Uh, yes, buffet, yeah, I, uh, Catholic. yeah. That's right. That's what the, the stuff the Vatican objects to. Yeah. Even though they've just done an amazing flip on condoms, haven't they? Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think it's a little bit overdue. A lot overdue, actually. No, I won't be shy about that. I think vastly overdue, and, and the hesitation was unrealistic yeah. and hurtful. You were saying then that there was a choice to be made between being a priest and being a writer. Why did you choose to be the writer then? I had a conversation years ago with someone whom I was in the Jesuits with who went on to become a writer. I don't know what's happened to him. His name is Jack Eastwood. And uh, we were all there together. A, a poet named Tim Lilburn from Saskatchewan was there at the same time in, the, in that novitiate. A number of us you know, had uh, had writing careers. And one of the things Jack said to me when I was sort of talking after having left the Jesuits about wanting to pursue this thing further in another form, he said, that, uh, okay, I think you imagine yourself with a collar on and that you have a very defined way of imagining yourself and that you should probably let that go. And as things went forward, I realized that one of the things that I was looking for was a very contained path, a certain path into the future. It was a way of controlling the future, that you knew what you would be. The answers were there. Yeah, and that there was something actually morbid about that. That was a turning away from whatever life might be. The unpredictability and the, yeah. the joy of and the discovery. And yeah, all those things. And, and so at the end of the poem you're referring to, called The Living, I refer to you know, having a sense of death. It, it was fairly clear to me that, pious as it might be, it was a wrong decision. That for me, I won't say for other people, but for me, there was something much more abandoned and reckless and adventurous about not doing it. And I think it was correct. I think I'm pretty comfortable with that as a, as a choice. And of course, my old mentor, Peter Levy, who was um, a very big deal in English poetry, was himself a Jesuit who had left. Uh, he left to get married. He married Cyril Connolly's widow. He was a very nice man, and he died too young. He was about 67, but uh, he had a great influence on me, and I think the world of it. Perhaps we could uh, close then with him and what it is you want to accomplish. Um, Peter Levy was probably the most influential recent poet for me. For other people, he tends to polarize opinions. Some people think he's frightful, and other people think he's an absolute genius. When I'd read his stuff, regardless of what it was, I was left with a sense of music and mystery. It's not the kind of thing you can actually imitate. What's the point of that? That's pretty empty, and you won't succeed doing it anyway. He said something to me, a number of throwaway phrases in conversation, talking about contemporary poetry, and just sort of said, and it sounds more pompous when I isolate it, I think the thing we're looking for lies further off, and that every crop of poets, every individual poet, forgets that you know it's all experimental and that somewhere down the road we'll see all this very differently. The very best, the most ingenious aesthetic choices you make in, at this time will appear limited and innocent later. So uh, keep on going. <laughs> like um, the ducks. Like the ducks, exactly. Yeah, like the ducks. So what, what am I trying to do as a poet? 
over the course of my years of writing poetry, and I started when in earnest when I was about 20, you know, getting a modest competence in, in my early 20s, I was looking for some point at which the mystery and the material thing came together. And my first book is much more interior than uh, what I write presently. I think maybe that is, on the one hand, a growth in me as a personality. I'm not so guarded. But also a, a stretching of skill that you're able to, to respond to the world around you and to describe things with some uh, energy and wit and fidelity. The best of my early poems are inward, somewhat exalted and far away, whereas the later ones, I hope, have much the same sense of mystery in them, but they tend to arise out of nearer things. I, I think I'm more confident and uh, just older. <laughs> you know, I, you know, got stuff to do, got places to be. And also, I think, uh, you know, despite the blows that come in life, you just simply become, I hope, happier and more settled in your life as you get older. With the poetry, you're trying to show people how to do that? No, I don't think I, I don't think I go as far as that. I think I guess when I'm writing, I'm counting on a sense of mystery and validity to arise out of truthful and compassionate descriptions of places and people and situations that strike me. They matter. It's not that I'm simply a camera recording things. I'm making choices about what I write about, and I'm coming to them with a uh, with a set of prejudices and, and interests and, and whatnot. You're not trying to proselytize, though. I think I would have given that up a long time ago. I would be much more interested, actually. You know, it sounds awfully solemn. There's something important just simply about compassion, that if a person shares the act of compassion with you, they do not need to share the minutiae of a, uh, of a theological outlook. Absolutely not. You know, so it's a spiritual sharing in something? Yeah, sure, yes, absolutely, and also to, to care about people's grief. So you're a compassionate eye on the United States, for example. I'd like to be that, yeah. I, yeah. Was, I had a, a very nice conversation in a class with someone who started in, so this is about the death of the American Empire. Well, I'm cautious about that because my experience there was more sorrowful than some sort of political celebration, you know, ding dong, the witch is dead. And but a lot of people do take pleasure in that. Don't yeah, they? one of the things though, when I say that, is that compassion is a tricky thing because I want to not be Dickens. It's easy to weep at the, the death of Little Nell. When Carmen Darnino, who had put together the book, and he put together in a great order that I'm very happy with, but it altered a, a juxtaposition that I had thought of. There's a poem in there on the death of an American-born poet, Sheldon Zittner, called Heroic Measures. It has the image in it of me being in New York and a bunch of $5 bills blowing around, a whole bunch of New Yorkers snapping up and handing them back to me. And I thought, there, the myth of the nasty New Yorker. And then I think, hang on now. And there's Sheldon back in Toronto in the hospital, and he's dying. What would Sheldon say? And I almost heard his voice in my head say, repeat the experiment. This time, use 20s. And in a way, the long poem is repeating the experiment and using a higher wager. I found that to be very cynical. It's the guy. <laughs> that was, look, this is human nature. They gave you the money back. What, you want to keep testing it? Yeah. It's like it, it's not good enough for you. I, I know they're not good. Just watch, and I'll show you. Yeah. I'll prove it. Instead yeah. of accepting that, look what happened. This is a good deed here. Yeah. They returned the money. Yeah. 
I think perhaps writing the long poem is in a way saying yes to the sentiment. If sometime you have uh, an opportunity to devote a, a program to a deceased poet, a commentary on Sheldon Zittner would be well worth a look because he's a very amazing Canadian poet, didn't publish anything till he was 70, and he did three wonderful books, and he was an immensely cynical guy. He was hysterically funny. He, w he was a gag writer in New York, and he would always be on my back. We were, shared uh, a workshop with uh, some, some real good writers, and John Rybatans is a Toronto poet who writes beautiful poetry, and he used the expression in his poem, My Childish Heart. And I sort of asked him, I wonder, is that a little soft? And Sheldon rounded on me, and he says, Professor Green, so you want him to change that? He's using the word heart, you have to modify it somehow. What do you want him to say? Achy breaky? <laughs> it's, a, it's a testing of, of sentiment, and I am actually quite a sentimental person. And so perhaps it's an argument with myself as to the status of what I feel and think. Can I trust it? Mm -hmm. Am I kidding myself? Am I caring or am I mawkish? Am I looking for soft proof of false propositions? You know, that, that people are nice. So they gave me back my five books. What would Sheldon say about this? Sheldon would say, repeat the experiment, mm -hmm. raise the wager. I would hope that there's enough kindness displayed in the long poem, uh, just entirely apart from technical issues of how it works as a poem, that question is answered hopefully in favor of, of human sentiment. I mean, I've got to trust something, man. <laughs> <laughs> also, I should say that there's uh, another poet in the background, Jeffrey Hill, the British poet. He had a lot of influence on me when I was younger. There's a terrific severity, as there is in T.S. Eliot, a testing, testing, testing of sentiments. And it may be a way of receiving the romantic tradition that you know, you have these hugely, gloriously emotional poets, you know, Wordsworth and Blake, and so that comes down to you through several or a bunch of generations of other experiences. How do you still talk about the daffodil after mm. the Battle of the Somme, or after the Holocaust? After the Holocaust, mm. you know, how do you continue to hope? Some of what's going on there is me as one of the big-time hopers testing myself and asking almost brutal questions at times. Well, thank you for writing this. Well, it's a real honor, and thank you so much for your kind reception of it. I've been speaking with Richard Green, who's published two previous books of poetry. He's the editor of the widely acclaimed Graham Green, A Life in Letters. Green, Richard, that is, teaches creative writing in British literature at the University of Toronto and lives in Coburg, Ontario. Thanks again. Thanks.